Hey there. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. This is your host, Dave Knoll. On today's episode, we will officially wrap up our series on Hitler's rise to the chancellorship. I will be talking with Dr. Randall Beitwerk. He is Professor Emeritus of Communication at Calvin University. He holds a PhD from Northwestern University. He has researched and written about Nazi propaganda and curates an online archive on the subject. You can find links in the description for more on his work. I really got a lot out of this discussion. We go over the Nazi political campaigns of 1932, as well as what he makes of my thesis that Hitler was closer to never gaining power than many realize. I hope you find it interesting. Thank you, Dr. Blytwerk, for for talking with me. I was wondering first if you could just give us some of your academic background. Well, I've been interested for about 40 years in aspects of German propaganda. I started out working, did a dissertation on Julius Streicher, who was probably the most prominent anti-Semite and and an unpleasant chap even for a Nazi, which which is saying something. And... After about eight or ten years of that, I thought, well, how confused people who are looking at me suspiciously, and I switched to the East Germans for a while, thinking mm-hmm. that we had, you know, Marxist propagandists as well. And then I got mm-hmm. back to the Nazis. So over the years, I wrote books on uh, Julius Stryker. I wrote a book that compared Nazi and East German political propaganda, a book of major political speeches by the Nazis, and the usual raft of academic articles on all kinds of uh, aspects of propaganda. Sure. And uh, you taught mostly at Calvin University, is that correct? Well, I started out, I spent 10 years at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And I'd gone to Calvin as an undergraduate. So after 10 years at Southern Illinois, I got a call from Calvin saying they had an opening and was I interested? And well, we were. So came back and spent the last 29 years of my academic career teaching at Calvin before retiring a few years back. Great. And what sparked your interest in the study of propaganda? It was, well, of course, we Calvinists don't say by chance, uh, but from outward appearances, it was by chance. When I was at Calvin, I'd done a senior paper on John Calvin's preaching, which we had a lovely collection of old Editions, English translations of John Calvin's preaching, big, thick, worm-eaten volumes, lovely stuff, and I had a great deal of delight in reading them. So I thought when I went to Northwestern University, I was going to do the great American thesis on John Calvin. But unfortunately, although I'd done a fine job of learning lots of things with Calvin, nobody had ever told me that if I was going to do graduate work on John Calvin, I had to know French and Latin, the languages he wrote in. Unfortunately, I knew German, so I quickly realized I was not going to do the great master's thesis on John Calvin. Now, it turns out there was a professor at Northwestern on the department who was interested in German propaganda, and I was the only graduate student, either there present or incoming, who knew enough of German to be dangerous. So he waged a campaign to persuade me to take up uh, the subject. He had a great argument, actually, for an academic. Uh, His point was, look, by work, there are only two other people in the field to work on this, and one of them is Dan Mediocre. Well, that was a pretty persuasive argument. So that's how I ended up <laughs> doing it. 
and then one thing led to another over the years. You know, as a good scholarly career does, you know, you finish one project and that leads to something else. And then there was this byproduct over here. So I basically never ran out of things to do over about 40 years of working on German propaganda. Sure. Yeah, so so the the subject of the podcast series I just finished was about the Nazi rise to power. And I spent a lot of time looking at their political campaigns, particularly in 1932. Um, and I was just wondering what you learned in your study of Nazi propaganda for their political campaigns prior to taking power. Well, the Nazis were, in modern terms, highly sophisticated in what they did. Uh, prior to the Nazis, German political parties tended to wage propaganda, if you will, during campaigns. And then they'd stop until the next campaign. The Nazis basically were full-time campaigners. It, I mean, it intensified during election periods. But after an election, when everybody else stopped holding meetings, the Nazis kept doing it. And they also worked at reaching all fast segments of the, the population. So, for instance, they had a farmer's affiliate. They had women's affiliates. They had one for the youth. They would go after the middle class. They would go after the socialists. And they tuned their propaganda according to each group. They knew that one size didn't fit all. And so what happened is they produced just enormous amounts of material aimed at all kinds of different audiences. They were really quite unique in that. Nobody else was really as consistent and as widespread as they were. Sure. Yeah, I... I uh came across that as well. And I was really astounded at sort of the innovative techniques they employed, the the loudspeakers on trucks and the airplane flights for Hitler and the even the research techniques they had and the massive amounts of time and money they spent on producing data to study. <laughs> um, yeah. What, um, is there anything else that you came across in your study that was innovative about their approach? Well, it's in part a consequence of what I suggested earlier, the desire to reach everyone. Now, the Germans didn't really have as strong a public speaking tradition as, you know, the Anglo-Saxon tradition. But the Nazis wanted to reach everybody. And they, consistent with Hitler's views of Mein Kampf, viewed the spoken word as the most effective method of propaganda. Didn't mean they didn't want to use other things, too. But they felt the most effective method of propaganda was to present the Nazi message in the form of the speaker standing before an audience. Now, Hitler, of course, was a spectacularly effective speaker. Joseph Goebbels was, and a variety of other Nazis were very good. But they weren't interested only in addressing mass meetings. So, for instance, in the late 1920s, the late 1920s, a chap named Fritz Reinhardt developed a correspondence school for public speaking. What this was designed to do is to arrange things so that even a small village would get, which nobody ever, would ever come to before, you know, the socialists, the communists, they wouldn't go to a small farming village, mm -hmm. in part because they didn't quite know how to reach that group, but also because they didn't have the speakers. Well, Reinhardt trained thousands. He claimed to have trained over 6,000 speakers. He may or may not have done that many, but he certainly did thousands of them. Uh, and this was an intensive course. I mean, it lasted for several months, for months. And when it was done, people who had never given a speech before could stand in front of an audience in their own village or in their own neighborhood, neighboring towns, 
and give a fairly coherent, organized speech. Well, they'd be speaking in towns and villages that had never had a political speaker before. And the Nazis wow. had come to the Nazis once, but two, three, four, five, six times, just repeatedly over and over and over again. Nobody else could do that to the same extent. So, you know, that was an example of one of the more innovative uh, things that, that they did. They developed yeah, radio listening clubs. You know, I mean, radios at that stage were somewhat expensive yet, and a lot of people couldn't afford one. So you get, this was not exclusive to the Nazis, but they certainly worked out hard. You'd set up a, a club and you'd get together and listen to the radio and then discuss it with, of course, a Nazi background. So again, it was a way of extending the propaganda into as many corners of the country as possible. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, regarding these uh, students who learned how to how to speak publicly, what were were they was the uh, up high organization giving them the topics to speak about usually? Well, what happened was that, as I said, Fritz Reinhardt was in the party's propaganda department. And he almost ran his own show. That is, he would decide what the issues of the day were, and the budding speakers would get mail instructions on things to read and instructions on how to organize a speech, instructions on what to say. Now, I mean, this was obviously consistent with the Nazi overall propaganda strategy. So, for example, in the late 1920s, when there was a discussion you mentioned about the Young Plan to deal with German war, World War I reparations. Reinhardt mm-hmm. put out a lot of material on the Young Plan, training people to you know, stand in front of an audience of farmers and discuss the Young Plan. And not in you know, 10 minutes. I mean, this might go on for half an hour, hour, hour and a half. They went into considerable detail. So it was part of the overall propaganda system. I mean, it wasn't that Reinhardt went his own way. But on the other hand, he, was, he knew the party line and as a consequence, was pretty adept at implementing it and providing material to these speakers that they could actually use. Sure. So focusing in on 1932, what what do you recall the major themes of the propaganda being? Well, of course, you had four major national elections plus the Prussian elections, and so it depended a little bit on the situation. The first major election was, of course, the March 1932 presidential election. And that was a little bit of a challenge for the Nazis. Hitler, as you, I'm sure, discussed, equivocated about whether or not to run because, mm-hmm. lo and behold, Hindenburg was, you know, I mean, a war hero. And how could he run against a war hero? He finally decided to do it. And the Nazis put their full effort into suggesting that there were terrible problems, that they needed the ability to put someone in charge who could take decisive action, who wasn't a captive of international finance, who wasn't, you know, the tool of any particular group, but was out to serve the whole country. And so, you know, they put out a lot of material aimed at socialists, at uh, more conservative folk for the first round. And Hitler did surprisingly well. Now, Hindenburg didn't get enough to have a majority, so they had to have a runoff. And mm-hmm. the second argument for that campaign the Nazis used was, look, you've got Hindenburg on the one hand, and all the other guys are supporting Hindenburg, and he got this number of votes. One man, Hitler, got you know, this enormous number of votes 
Okay, so he finished second, but guess what? You know, he is the strongest individual figure, the strongest individual party behind him. And so, you know, they they built that argument of Hitler Mm -hmm. as the savior of Germany using really Christian imagery of the savior coming to save his people from, in this case, not their sins, but from the burdens that were inflicted upon them by others. Now, the July 1932 Reichstag election was, again, along the same lines. By now, it was clear that Hitler was a major figure. I mean, the presidential elections had demonstrated that. And so they threw everything they had into it. They put out uh, a variety of brochures aimed at particularly uh, you know, communists, others aimed at Marxists, others aimed at nationalists, and so on. They had to be a little careful, of course, if they didn't say contradictory things to different audiences, which they sometimes did. But the point is they focused specifically on various audiences with particular propaganda. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they became the largest party in the Reichstag, but they didn't have a majority. And as your podcast points out, when the Reichstag met for the first time, it came to a, a quick state of uh, dissolution <laughs> under Hermann Goering, which was rather directly done in the Nazi part, from the Nazi point of view. But the problem they had with the November election was they were exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, here you had all these poor party members. And the other thing to realize is, I use the word poor because uh, they were poor. That is, mm-hmm. you know, the Nazis didn't, they got some money from, you know, industrialists and all of the rest. But most of the propaganda was self-financing. You know, they would charge uh, admission to meetings. And guess what? Uh, if they didn't call in enough, they had to draw on their supporters, many of whom were unemployed and all the rest. So these guys were just absolutely exhausted. They'd been through three major election campaigns. And despite repeated promises that this time we're going to do it, Hitler's going to win, this time we're going to succeed, now we're going to the fourth major election of the year. And there was a general weariness within the organization. So they pushed as hard as they could. And of course, the results, as your podcast points out, was that their vote totals actually dropped and they went mm-hmm. down. They were still, of course, the significant party, but they lost seats. So there was this sense of despair, which Goebbels, you know, recognized. He said, you know, what what can we do now? I mean, We've done everything we can. There's a sense of it was all in vain. What can we do? But it was a, just a remarkable year for the Nazis, just enormous energy put into the propaganda. Sure. How how aware um, or how strong did the Nazis push anti-Semitic propaganda in all of these campaigns? Well, you know, that is an interesting thing because... In the late in the 1920s, the Nazis had been heavily anti-Semitic in their propaganda. Joseph Goebbels in Berlin had his newspaper Der Angriff, which was a paper which went after the vice president of police in Berlin, who happened to be Jewish. And there were a variety of scandals Jews were involved in, so it was heavily anti-Semitic. What's interesting is that in 1932, there was little anti-Semitism in the general Nazi party propaganda. It didn't disappear. You had people like Julius Stryker in Nuremberg who was pushing, putting out his uh, 
weekly newspapers or Stormer, for example, which was consistently anti-Semitic. But you can go through Hitler's speeches at, for, for all of 1932 and Goebbels' speeches. It's not that there won't be any anti-Semitism, but there wasn't really a tremendous amount of it. They downplayed it. And I, I think the reason for that is that, I mean, the Nazis, Nazis realized that anti-Semitism, first of all, had won over everybody that was going to win over. I mean, everybody who was, didn't like the Jews realized the Nazis were their party. On the other mm -hmm. hand, they had to appeal to people who were not anti-Semitic. They weren't going to vote for Hitler because he was attacking the Jews. And so mm -hmm. what they did is they said, okay, anti-Semitism has carried us about as far as it can right now. We'll downplay it. We'll focus on other issues to win voters who can be won over by that method. So that was a rather interesting aspect of the propaganda of 1932. They didn't stop being anti-Semitic. They just stopped talking about it as much. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. What what do you make of sort of the, I know this is hard to 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 boil down, but the average Nazi voter in these campaigns, how aware were they were they voting for anti-Semitism, or how aware of that were they when they were voting? Would you say? Well, if you are a Nazi, that that is not simply a vote somebody who voted for the Nazis, but if you are a Nazi, you knew very well the anti-Semitic focus of the party. I mean even if you didn't read Mein Kampf, and most of them didn't go through that rather turgid volume, uh, you know, there is plenty of anti-Semitism just in references uh, to it. And the party platform was anti-Semitic, the famous 24 points. So the point is that if you were a Nazi voter, and if you were a Nazi member, you knew absolutely that anti-Semitism was at the core of Nazi ideology. If you were person who voted for the Nazis, you very possibly did not vote for the Nazis because they're anti-Semitic. That may not have been number one on your list. I mean, you may not have liked the Jews very much, but it wasn't your primary interest. Your primary interest was, gee, I'm unemployed. Or if you're middle class, the Marxists, the communists, the socialists are going to take over and the Nazis will protect us from them. And so people could vote for the Nazis for all kinds of different reasons. Anti-Semitism was only one of them. And as I said, it was probably one of the less important ones in 1932. Yeah, that's really interesting. I kept trying to wrap my head around sort of where the anti-Semitism came from in these interwar years. And obviously, it's not limited to just Germany. Where did you come down on that? Where, where did you, where were the main sources of anti-Semitism coming from like, that manifested itself all around the world in this time? Well, you know... That's an interesting issue, and I don't think I have a brilliant answer to it. Basically, there was, of course, a long German anti-Semitic tradition, just as there was a long European anti-Semitic tradition. You know, in the United States, the most visible form of racism over the years was anti-black racism because blacks were the most visible American minority group. It's not that Jews were not uh, the target of anti-Semitism, but mm -hmm. they're a less visible. Well, in mm -hmm. Europe, in general, in Germany in specific, you know, the Jews were the most obvious minority group. And so they stood out for that reason. And as I said, there'd been a long history of anti-Semitism. Now, I think it found fertile ground, particularly after the war, World War I, because from the point of view of your typical German, 
even though it was obvious to you know the military leadership that the war had been lost. To the typical German, it seemed incredible that the law, war had been lost. I mean, in 1917, they'd knocked Russia out of the war. So mm-hmm. they'd moved from a two-front war to a one-front war. And they were still in France. Enemy soldiers weren't on German soil. But somehow or another, they lost. And although, as I said, there were clear military reasons why, those were not obvious to lots of Germans. And so people came along and said, well, why did we lose? It was treason. And who are the likeliest perpetrators of treason? That would be the Jews. So you had all mm-hmm. kinds of uh, stories about how the Jews had gotten rich during the war, how they'd avoided uh, service at the front so that they could stay home and get fat off the uh, war contracts that they ex- exploited. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly after the war, the Jews became a convenient scapegoat, as they've often been throughout history. Mm-hmm. And that really continued along the way. Now, it's still not the case that, you know, I would say even the majority of the Germans in the 1920s were vehemently anti-Semitic. You know, you had parties like the uh, socialists and the communists who were not particularly anti-Semitic, in fact, quite often the opposite. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was a you know, an increasing tide of anti-Semitism as a kind of explanation. I mean, the nice thing about anti-Semitism is that if you accept the premise that the Jews are responsible for the ills of the world, everything makes sense. It's, it's almost mm. a theology, because whatever happens, you can explain it. If there's an economic problem, well, gee, look at the Jewish bankers. It's, it's their fault. If there's unemployment... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's those Jewish factory owners who are laying off people or depressing, you know, whatever the the issue is, you can find a Jew or Jews connected somehow or another. So it becomes an all, ex, you know, everything really, well, Julius Streicher, the anti-Semite, you know, his slogan on his newspaper for years was the Jews are our misfortune. Hmm. And, you know, meant that quite literally. So anti-Semitism for a certain percentage of the population, not all or not even most of it, but for a significant part of the population, was a internally consistent explanation for what was wrong with not only Germany but the world. Hmm. The other thing that that I found was sort of manifested itself around the world at this time was the the rise of these sort of strong public speakers, and a lot of that had to do with the new technology, like the radio and and things like that. But um, I'm thinking of obviously people like Hitler and Goebbels, but also, um, in the United States, people like uh, Father Coughlin and Huey Long and these type of people. Mm-hmm. And what, um, speaking specifically about, about Hitler, like why do you think the audience reacted so strongly and emotionally to his public speeches? Mm-hmm. Well, Hitler, in Mein Kampf, who talks about principles of propaganda, and if you could summarize Hitler's views on propaganda into three principles, it would be, you know, uh, make it simple, uh, repeat it, and do it with passion, you know, simplicity, reputation, and emotional appeal. Hitler was extraordinarily good at that. Now, most, a lot of Americans, you know, they wonder how could Hitler be effective because they've seen brief excerpts in which Hitler is up there kind of waving his arms and yelling like a, you know, insane person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
that's not how Germans perceived him. The first thing to realize is when he gave a speech, it was often long. I mean, an hour for Hitler was a short speech. Hmm. You could easily go for two hours, sometimes more. And, you know, if he'd been yelling, ranting, and raving all of that time, uh, he'd be hoarse, which he had a problem with anyway because he spoke so much, uh, but he'd wear himself and the audience out. But instead, what Hitler was extraordinarily good at is making a connection with the audience. If you listen to Hitler's speech from the beginning, and I don't care if this is the 20s or 1940, he begins in a kind of hesitant way, a calm way, almost uncertain, groping, trying to get a feel for the audience because he needed to feed off the audience response and then that would build him up and he could put more passion to it and the audience would respond and so on. So basically when you walked into a Hitler speech, you heard a passionate argument once he got worked up. I mean, this was a person who was convinced on the surface that Germany was in terrible shape, that he was the person to solve it, that nobody else could. Uh, you know, his arguments were simple. You didn't walk out of a Hitler speech shaking your head saying, gee, I mean, he had this five-point or ten-point plan to solve the economy. Um, <laughs> you know, didn't do that. Instead, he just basically promised to, uh, to fix it. Goebbels once said in one of his speeches on propaganda, look, people say, well, why don't you have a plan? He said, look, we could spend 10 years fighting for reform of the educational system. We could come up with a wonderful plan on how to reform the educational system. And if we didn't get elected, it would be 10 years of wasted effort. But if instead we put all of our effort into getting elected, if we take over the government, then overnight we can implement our educational policy. So why spend all that time trying to persuade people of a complicated and uh, you know intricate plan when it's basically wasted effort? Yeah. So when Hitler finished, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, the, the religious image is often made. You know, Hitler is, and the Nazis used that argument. I mean, they used Christian imagery. They were preachers uh, to the masses of Germany. And that's how Hitler came across. He came across more as an evangelist than as a political speaker. And in the place of an altar call, you know, in the American tradition, by the end, the audience was worked up to a frenzy and they would be shouting, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil. It was an exhausting experience almost by the time he was done. He was exhausted and the audience was exhausted. Yeah, I remember reading and watching documentaries about this and I couldn't help but just be struck at the the type of emotional response the crowd gave him just the you would hear stories of people being weak at the knees or fainting or um, being so emotionally over overcome and I think that's very uh, apt comparison to compare it to um, people who claim to experience a really religious um, type of experience at a at a big uh, religious service of some kind um, now, in so my, that's why the crowd was so important. That was why the crowd was so important. Because if you have, well, you know, the, the speakers I mentioned earlier would take the correspondence course. You know, they might speak to 25 people in a bar or room somewhere in a village. Well, you're not going to get the same kind of passionate experience then. You need a crowd. You need thousands or tens of thousands of people. Because, of course, what happens then is that it carries everybody with, you know, you, you start by being a bit hesitant, but around you, people are cheering and, and pretty soon you start doing it a little bit. 
It's contagious. And by the time the meeting is over, you know, you may have come uncertain about Hitler, but swept away by the thousands of people around you sharing those Sieg Heils, you got carried away too. Hmm. Yeah. So in my podcast, I sort of make the make the argument that the the Nazi movement was sort of closer to falling apart than most of the lay audience realizes. Uh, what do you what do you make of that premise? It's an entirely plausible uh, premise because you know throughout the uh, years up to uh, November 1932, the Nazis had success. You know there are more votes every time. They had success here. They had success there, and they had momentum. In fact, you know the Nazi word they were they called themselves a party, but they refer to themselves as a movement, you know, the National Socialist Movement. Because a movement suggests, you know, motion, going someplace. And what happened was that after November 1932's election decline, as I mentioned earlier, there was general kind of weariness and despair, which Gerbils admits in, one, in uh, his diaries. That's why in January of 1933, there was an election in the, the uh, province of Lipa, which was a small... Uh, did you discuss that? I forget. I, I just posted it today where I discussed it, yeah. Okay, no wonder I didn't remember that. So what happened was that, you know, I mean, it was a small state, but the Nazis put everything they had into it. I mean, Hitler spoke all over the place. Kerbals spoke. They put everything they could in. And even though the election was relatively insignificant as an election... What it allowed the Nazis to do is to say, hey, we haven't lost the momentum. Look at Lippa. We put our efforts there. There's still hope. And so that gave mm -hmm. them a very necessary uh, boost. But it was also true that you could only keep that level of passion, uh, you know, going so long. And so certainly, uh, you know, Goebbels, too, in his diaries, that they're worried because they're not sure if they don't, if they don't keep winning. Then what happens? And there wasn't going to be anything after Lippa for a while in terms of elections. So, you know, I mean, history is who can tell, but I think it's, it's at least a plausible argument that if, in fact, uh, the political leaders around Hindenburg hadn't encouraged Hitler's appointment, if in another, you know, a month, two, three, four, you know, the movement might have declined. But it's, it's very difficult to tell. You know, who would have been the alternative? I mean, you had the socialists and the communists, but they had very strong supporters, but the majority of the country, you know, feared the Marxists. So it's, it's sure. hard to tell. Um, it, but it's, it's, it's a plausible argument that if Hitler hadn't taken power on January 30th, that uh, he might not have been able to take power at all. But, you know, you can't sure. prove the argument. I really put the spotlight on Franz von Papen, um, and what do you make of his role? How much blame do you put on him? Well, he's got a good share of the blame because <laughs> he and the others, you know, thought. Now, of course, part of it was there was some desperation because, I mean, the, you know, the, the political system was in a mess. And so they were desperately looking for alternatives. And, of course, they hoped that they would be able to control Hitler, that uh, he would be, you know, I mean, he just had his position and Gehringgaden it. 
but all these other experienced politicians that they thought would be able to control Hitler. Of course, they were desperately wrong on that because they really, I mean, you know, they underestimated Hitler. They didn't think that he was capable of what he was capable of. But certainly von Papen and you know, even Hindenburg, who reluctantly, very reluctantly appointed Hitler, you know, they all have a share of the responsibility for what turned out to be a catastrophically bad decision. Yeah, this is something I haven't, I didn't really get into in my podcast because I kind of ended it with um, on January 30th, like you said. But I, I've always been fascinated or just curious. I wish I could have known what Hindenburg was thinking as events transpired in 1933 and then in 1934 before his death. Do you think he had a, like, what have I done <laughs> type mindset? Boy, you know, that's hard to tell. I mean, of course, he was very elderly by then. And one of the things that the Nazis did is to really do everything they could to stay on Hindenburg's good side. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if in, say, even the summer of 1933, Hindenburg and his connections to the army had said, I made a terrible mistake, this man has to go. It's very probable that, you know, the army would have backed Hindenburg and there would have been bye-bye Hitler. So instead, you know, the Nazis and Hitler did everything they could to stand Hindenburg's good side. You know, there was the Potsdam, uh, the day of Potsdam, in which, uh, you know, Hitler and Hindenburg show up and look very impressive. and Hindenburg was conservative, didn't like the Marxists, and lo and behold, you know, Hitler seemed to be saving Germany from the Marxists after the uh, Reichstag fire. So I think what happened is, and this, I'm less confident of this than some other things, so I really haven't paid a lot of attention to Hindenburg after 1933, but mm-hmm. my guess is that, you know, Hindenburg may not have actually liked Hitler a whole lot. But I think as he saw that, gee, the country seemed to be coming together a little more, gee, the Marxists would be taken care of, I have a feeling that, if anything, his dislike of Hitler probably diminished, probably diminished. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. In interest of your time, I just, I'll just have one, one last question. A friend recently asked me this, and I thought it was a really interesting question, and I uh, if you don't have an answer off the top of your head, that's totally fine. Um, but he asked me if you could change just one thing to avoid all of this, uh, what would it have been? And I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Well, one thing would probably would have made all the difference was after the beer hall putsch, Hitler hmm. was, you know, in 1923, Hitler was given a very light jail term. Now, and the party, you know, kind of went into uh, stasis, didn't go any much of anywhere while he was in jail. Now, if, in fact, I mean, he, you know, he was guilty of high treason, right? I mean, he was trying to overthrow mm-hmm. uh, the government. If, instead of given a relatively short sentence under really very pleasant conditions, I mean, if he had to go to jail, uh, Hitler, you know, Shall we say he didn't have supermax isolation? He had visitors and all of the rest. If instead mm-hmm. the court had said, you're sentenced to 10 years, the party was able to kind of hold together for the year or so that he was in jail. It couldn't have held for five years, eight years, 10 years. 
So I guess mm -hmm. if you could go back or if I could go back and change one thing, I would somehow try to provide, propose to those, uh, the legal system, when Hitler's tried, give the man 10 years. He's earned those 10 years. I think if that had happened, the party would have faded away. Well, thank you, Dr. Bytwork. I actually really learned a lot from this, and I really um, enjoyed this conversation. And by the way, too, I got a lot out of the website that you curate, the, the archives website. Um, even for my dissertation, I used some of it um, when I was sort of comparing the radio policies of, uh, of America and those in Europe. Where can, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, the simplest thing is just do a search on Google for Nazi propaganda, and my website will typically be in the first, the top five on Google. So just do a Google search for Nazi propaganda and look for the German propaganda archive in the top five or so. You won't have too much difficulty finding it. Great. And I'll also put a link for some of your stuff also in the description down below. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Pytorch. This was really fun. Well, I'm glad to be of use and best wishes on the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Points of No Return in History. You can find links below for more information on Dr. Bytwork, including the online archive he curates. Be on the lookout soon for a teaser for our next series on the build-up to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Have a great week, everyone.